Chapter 14. The Tithe. Tithe means the tenth part and is a fixed ten percent of whatever is taxed. The tithe is holy unto the Lord, Leviticus 27, 30-33, and belongs to Him. Since the tithe is the Lord's, it can only be used for His designated purpose. Man is only a steward of God for the administration of his tax, and is held accountable by God for his godly use of it. If a man refuses to pay the tithe, or uses it in violation of God's intended purpose, then he is a robber of God. And just as a man will curse a robber, so will God curse and destroy those who are robbers of him. Malachi 3, 8-9 The tithe in Scripture was an annual tax, Deuteronomy 14.22, and was to be paid on all the yearly in increase of the land, trees, flocks, and herds. Leviticus 27, 30 through 33. Deuteronomy 14, 22 through 28. The tithe was paid after the Feast of Weeks, in which the first fruits were given to the house of the Lord and used for rejoicing before God. The first fruits were the first ripe fruits, or first results of a man's pro productive labors. Exodus 22, 29, 23, 16. The first fruits were to be paid at the Feast of Weeks, at the conclusion of Israel's first harvest, as a token of the Israelites' deliverance from Egypt and God's gifts of fruitfulness. Exodus 22:29, 23:16, Deuteronomy 26, 1-11. The tithe was also to be paid after the firstlings of the herd and flocks were numbered as belonging to God. This can be seen from the fact that the firstlings were to be given to the Lord on the eighth day after their birth. Exodus 22:30. But God had claimed ownership of them from the day he smote the firstborn of man and beast in Egypt. Numbers 3:13. The tithe then can be understood as an annual tax on the increase after payments or deductions for the taxes of the first fruits and the firstlings of the flocks and the herds. This tax was a tax on the increase of the land, trees, herds and flocks. The land, trees, herds, and flocks themselves were not taxed. They constituted a man's capital and were not subject to the tithe. What was subject to this tax was the yearly production of the land, trees, herds, and flocks. What God taxed was not a man's capital, but the yield or increase from his capital. Hence, it, it can be understood that, in principle, the tithe is a 10% tax on the annual return of a capital investment. In our age, we tend to view capital as simply an investment in machines, real estate, farming properties, stocks and bonds, etc. But capital is not limited to visible assets. In fact, the most basic and precious of all assets is knowledge, for it is by the use of knowledge that man is able, able to be productive. It is man's knowledge of how, by what laws, creation is governed and ruled that enables him to be fruitful. Since God rules both man and his world by his law or word, it is God's word that is the cornerstone upon which all of man's true knowledge must be built. Since God's law rules creation, and since man cannot be productive apart from his knowing and adhering to the laws that rule his world, we can understand that God's word is a man's starting point for all capital formation. Without knowledge of God's law, man is destroyed. Hosea 4.6 For it, it is the knowledge of God and his law that governs creation, that is man's ultimate and most precious capital. It is the knowledge of the law of God, which rules both man and his world, 
that is a man's basic capital structure upon which he is to build the kingdom of God on earth in every area of life and thought. For this reason, God never taxes capital itself, because he would, in principle, be laying a tax burden upon himself. Instead, what God does tax is man's return, or results of the use of his knowledge of God. Therefore, knowledge can be understood as man's most basic, common, and val valuable form of capital. Knowledge and education are capital in the same sense that machines, real estate, and stocks are capital. Simply because the return on knowledge and education often takes the form of wages, rather than the form of profits, rents, or dividends, does not exclude it from being capital. Wages are just as much a return on capital as profits, rents, and interest are returns on capital. In fact, in our age, the percentage return on capital investment to the laborer over his productive life in general is generally much greater than the return the capitalist gets from his visible capital investments. In scripture, capital is capital regardless of the forms it may take, and all returns on inv capital investments, regardless of whether they are wages, profits, rents, or interest, are subject to God's plan of taxation. All returns on all capital investments are subject to taxation. This includes any increase in the value of the original capital investment. The original capital that has been invested is not subject to taxation, but all increases above the original investment are taxable. All such increases, or capital gains, are taxable since they are a return or increase on capital in the general sense that wages, profits, rents, and interest are increases on capital. For example, if a man were to buy non-productive laying hens for $20, tended them until they began to produce, and then sold them for $30, he would have a capital gain of $10. This capital gain of $10 is his return or increase on his original capital investment of $20 and is therefore a taxable increase. All capital gains over and above the original capital investments, regardless of whether they are from the sale of houses, real estate, stocks, bonds, machinery, merchandise, farm products, etc., are required to be tithed upon since they co constitute an increase or return on the original capital investment. In ancient Israel, God required that the tithe be paid after the harvest of new crops and the birth of new animals. This means that the tithe was not paid on potential increase, but on actual realized increase. Only what was actually harvested or born was subject to this tax. If no harvest was gathered during the year, then no tax was paid, since no increase had been collected. This can be readily understood from the fact that in the sabbatical year, no farming was to be performed, and therefore no harvest was to be gathered. Since no harvest was ingathered, no tithe could be paid. Leviticus 25, 1-22. Only when the annual harvest was actually ingathered was the tithe to be paid. From this, we can understand the principle that the tithe is levied only upon actual realized returns or increases on capital that have been obtained or ingathered during the year. This means that the tithe is not to be paid on increases in the value of the original capital every year, but it is only to be paid in the year that the increase has actually been realized or harvested. For example, a man buys a young calf for $20. As the calf grows towards maturity, its value increases year by year in the market. Finally, the man sells the animal the fifth year for $400. This fifth year he has realized or harvested the increase over his original capital investment. He then tithes on his 
$380 return or profit. He did not have to pay the tithe on the increased value of the animal the second, third, or fourth years, since he had not harvested his profit or increased during those years. The principle is that only in the year that an actual increase has been harvested does the return on an original capital investment become subject to the tithe. It does not matter whether the increase is in the form of capital gains, resulting from the sale of a house, business, stock, etc., wages, profits, rents, or interest, dividends, interest, bonds, savings accounts, etc. Any return on a capital investment must be tithed on only in the actual year that the increase has been ingathered. In principle, the tithe was not a tenth part of each harvest during the year. This tax was an annual tax levied against the annual increase. The tithe was to be paid on the total increase of all harvests for the year at the end of the growing season. We can understand this from the fact that both the rejoicing tithe, which was paid each year, and the poor tithe, which was paid once every three years, were to be paid in one lump sum at the end of the harvest harvest year. Deuteronomy 14, 22-29 this does not mean that the tithe could only be paid at the end of the year. On the contrary, often various fruits, vegetables, etc. ripen before the end of the yearly growing season and need to be tithed upon before the end of the season. But in principle, the tithe was an annual tax. It was to be paid on or before the end of each year on the increase of all the land, trees, herds, and flocks. The tithe is an annual tax for two basic reasons. First, the tithe was required to be paid on all the increase prior to man's use of this gain. The produce of the land, the fruit of the trees, and the offspring of the herds and flocks could not be used by man for his own purpose or benefit prior to his payment of this tax. This can be understood from an exa examination of Numbers 18.25-32. The Levites were required by God to tithe out of their increase the best thereof to the high priest prior to their own use of the tithes that they had obtained from the Israelites. If the Levites tithed on the tithe, then they would bear no sin for their personal use of the remaining increase. Failure to tithe on their gifts prior to their use of the, their increase could mean they had robbed God of his due, and that they would be cursed by him and forced to bear their sin. Numbers 18.32, Malachi 3.8-9 The Levites were four forbidden the use of the tithes that they had received for their service to the theocracy prior to their tithing on the increase. The tithes that they received were recognized as being in essence the same as an increase of the, quote, corn of the threshing floor and as the fullness of the winepress, Numbers 18.27. Hence, in principle, both the tithe that the Levites received as the reward for their labors in the tabernacle and the increase that the Israelites received from his labors with his land, trees, and herds were seen as being the same in the eyes of God. Since both the increase of the Levites and the increase of the remaining Israelites were seen by God as being the same, and since the Levites were required to pay the tithe prior to their use of their increase, we can understand that the tithe was required to be paid by all the people of Israel prior to any person, personal use of the rewards of their labors. Because no man could use his increase prior to payment of the tithe, no man could use the increase of the yearly growing season prior to his payment of this tax. Since all the increases of the land, trees, and herds occurred within one year's time, all tithing had to be done on or before the end of each year. 
Hence, in principle, the tithe is an annual tax that must be paid on all increase that occurs during each year and must be paid prior to, man, to man's personal use of the rewards of his labors. Second, because man is a creature who lives in time, he must establish his gain or increase in time. It is the nature of profits that they cannot be determined apart from their occurrence in some fixed time schedule. Without time, profits cease to exist. The reason for this is that profits are simply the increase over and above original capital investment. But this increase cannot be determined apart from it being determined at the end of some fixed time period. If this time period is one year, then a man can deduct his original capital investment from what he possesses at the end of the year and determine if he has a profit. If there is no time period for deducting his original investment from what he possesses, then he can never determine his profits because he can never determine at what point in time he is to make such a determination. Without a fixed point in time at which a man must deduct his original investment from what he, he now has, profits or increases cease to exist. And if profits, profits cease to exist, the tithe becomes irrelevant. Without a time schedule for the determination of profits, man could simply pay the tithe on that portion of his profits that he wished to use for his own personal benefit rather than on the whole in increase. For this reason, one complete growing season or year is the longest time period that is allowed in Scripture for determining profits. The accounting of all actual realized profits must be determined within one year, and the tithe paid on all these increases prior to their subsequent use by man. The tithe was to be paid out on, quote, all the increase of thy seed that the field bringeth forth year by year. Deuteronomy 14:22 and 28. The tithe was not on gross or net income, but was on the increase. The modern idea that there can be such a thing as, quote, gross versus, quote, net profit is the result of modern man's hatred of God. Profit is a built-in feature of creation and is clearly manifested in every ear of corn that springs forth from a single seed. Gross versus net profit has no meaning in Scripture. Profit in Scripture is simply the increase over and above the original investment. This does not mean that costs are not deductible before the tithe is paid. All costs that are necessary for the production of profit are deductible before a profit or increase is to be determined. In principle, all costs that are necessary ingredients for the production of an increase are not to be counted as profits. They are no more profits than the original capital investment is a profit. Just as the original capital is necessary for any increase, so are costs a necessary part of any increase. For example, no man can grow wheat without land. Neither can he grow wheat without seed. The land is his original capital investment, and his seed is a necessary cost for the production of, or raising of his wheat. The seed is fully deductible from the amount of wheat that he harvests at the end of the growing season because it is not a profit or increase to him. Only the wheat that he harvests above his cost can be counted as an increase. The belief that there can be such a thing as gross and net profits is illusionary. In the real world, the world ruled by God's law, an increase is an increase, a cost is a cost, and capital is capital. Costs are not profits regardless of how often they may be incorporated into unrealistic jargon of gross profits. In Scripture, costs that are related to productive increases are not condemned regardless of whether they are for advertising, entertainment, labor, material, etc. 
This can be understood from the fact that capital is not taxed as an increase and that the tithe was paid on the remaining increase after deductions for the taxes of the first fruits and the firstborn. The latter were costs required by the word of God and were paid before the increase of the land, trees, herds, and flocks was determined. In regard to the tithe, scripture does not emphasize costs. The reason for this is basically twofold. First, the total amount collected by payment of the tithe is not materially reduced when costs are, are deducted. They are not materially reduced because generally one man's costs are another man's profits. What man, one man can deduct as a business expense is generally a profit to another party who must pay the tithe on his profit. Since the percentage amount paid as the tithe remains the same for both parties, the overall amount paid as tithes remains the same. For example, a farmer has a field from which he can harvest 200 bushels of wheat. He hires 10 laborers to help harvest his crop, and each laborer receives 10 bushels for his labor. The farmer's cost of harvesting is 100 bushels of wheat, since this is his labor cost. His profit is also 100 bushels of wheat. Since both the farmer and the laborers must pay 10%, or the tithe on their increase, the total paid in tithes is 20 bushels, which is the total amount that would be paid on the whole harvest. Because the tithe is a fixed percentage rate on all increase, the total amount collected by this tax tends to remain the same regardless of the legitimate costs that are deducted and regardless of how many cost deductions are made in each stage of production. Nor does it matter whether the cost is a payment to a third party for the second party's benefit. For example, if the farm farmer paid an additional 10 bushels of wheat to a third party for food insurance for the laborers, this cost would be a legitimate business expense. Instead of paying 10 bushels as the tithe, the farmer would pay 9. The food insurer, who was the recipient of the extra 10 bushels, would then tithe on his increase, which would be 1 bushel. The total amount paid in tithes would remain approximately the same, i.e. 20 bushels. The laborers would not have to pay the tithe on this extra insurance cost, since the insurer, and not they, was the recipient of the 10 bushels. They would only tithe as they, in turn, receive benefits from the insurer since these benefits would be a result of their labor to the farmer. Legitimate cost deductions do not materially re reduce the amount of funds collected through the tithe. Only where ungodly progressive taxation is levied on profit does cost deduction tend to reduce the total amount of funds collected. It does so because progressive tax rates always tend to encourage rising costs in order to alleviate an ungodly tax burden. But God's plan of taxation neither encourages nor discourages the formation of costs. God's tithe leaves each person and business free from oppressive taxation, which in turn brings true freedom in the conduct of financial and business affairs. Such a system of taxation frees men to think in terms of how they may best develop both man and the earth's potential, rather than encouraging them to concentrate on schemes of tax avoidance. Second, costs are not emphasized in Scripture since the mere counting of costs in and of itself will not develop either man nor the earth's potential. In fact, merely counting costs is an extremely effective method of dissipating one's assets. The reason is obvious. Without a continuing source of new income, regardless of how careful a person is in counting his costs, his assets will be dissipated over a given period of time. Simply counting costs will decapitalize anyone unless such cost counting is an aspect of income pr production. 
Therefore, the thrust of Scripture is not upon cost-counting, but upon godly development of both man and his world. God does not see his creation as a world of scarcity, but as a world of potentiality. When God created Adam in Eden, he gave man the task of developing both himself and his world through man's knowledge of the Creator. God did not assign man a task that he could not perform, but gave him the necessary tools, both intellectually and physically, for his assigned task. For Adam, and for us who are redeemed in Christ, who know the law of God, the world was not created as a world of scarcity, but as a world ripe for development and harvest. For this reason, Scripture does not emphasize cost-counting per se, but the continuing progressive development of both man and his world by the word of God. In fact, this is the lesson of the parable of the talents of Matthew twenty-five fourteen through 30 This parable shows us that the man who does not, who does not develop every area of life and thought in terms of the law word of God, but instead buries his talents through cost-counting, will be cursed by God. He will be cursed by God because the failure to see the world as a field ripened into harvest is an attack upon the Creator. It faults God because it declares that God's gift of life and its blessings are, in principle, one of misery and travail, and the man who con condemns God will, in turn, be condemned and cursed by God. God's creation is not a world of scarcity, but of potentiality. Therefore, cost counting should only be seen as a necessary aspect of the continuing development and growth of man and his world through obedience to God's law. The aim of Scripture is to teach us that we should not bury our talents, but that we should use them in order to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. When Scripture speaks of the tithe, it does so in the context of tithing on an increase that came as a result of some productive effort or service. The tithe is not levied against increase per se, but only on those increases that are re returns on labor, service, and capital. For example, the tithe is levied against all returns on land, trees, flocks, and herds. Leviticus 27, 30-32 Thou shalt truly tithe all the increase of thy seed that the field bringeth forth year by year. Deuteronomy 14.22 The seed is both return on labor and on capital. Therefore, the seed is subject to the tithe. The Levites, for example, rendered a service to the theocracy of Israel. The tithes that they received for this service were, quote, as the, the increase of the threshing floor and as the increase of the winepress. Numbers 18.30 For this reason, the Levites were required to pay the tithe of all the tithes that were given to them. Their service to Israel was productive in the same general sense that the laborers, laborers in the field and the farmers' lands were productive. Hence, the return on their service was subject to the tithe, just as wages of the laborer and the return on the farmers' land were subject to the tithe. The tithes that they received were their rewards for their service and were, therefore, subject to taxation. Numbers 1825 25-32 in addition, those services rendered in war which bring an increase are also subject to the tithe. The spoils of war are subject to the tithe because war is productive when waged in obedience to the word of God. It is a common belief that war is, in and of itself, evil. This view is false. War is either good or evil, depending upon whose law governs the necessity for waging it and determines how and for what ends it shall be waged. If war is engaged and waged in obedience to the law of God, it is ne neither evil nor counterproductive. 
The purpose of war and the suppression of crime in Scripture is for the purpose of maintaining a godly social order. Without such a social order, pr productive enterprises would cease. Therefore, the maintaining of this order through the suppression of criminal activity by the police and the defense of the theocracy by the military is a productive service rendered to a godly society. The spoils of war are subject to the tithe since they are the result of productive services rendered for the pr preservation of the theocracy. As can be seen, the tithe is not levied upon all increase per se, but only upon those increases that are returns on some form of productive enterprise, capital, or service. There are four general categories of increase in Scripture which are not the result of some productive eff effort and are therefore not subject to the tithe. First, there is the increase received by inheritance. Inheritance is not taxed in Scripture because God does not view individuals as owners of property. Property is seen by God as belonging to the family unit. The transfer of property, property from father to son by inheritance is simply the transfer of stewardship from father to son. No real increase is gained by the son since he is really only assuming the continued stewardship, stewardship of the inherited property in order to later transfer the same stewardship responsibility to his son. Of course, the increase or profits obtained from the inherited property are subject to the tithe, but the property or inherited wealth itself is not. The increase obtained through inheritance is not the result of any productive effort. It is, in reality, simply the transfer of capital from father to son, who both are owners of, of it since both are members of the family unit. Second, gifts are not subject to the tithe. The reason is twofold. Gifts are not payments for service, services rendered, rewards for labor, or returns on capital. They cannot be, for, for if any gift is given as a payment or reward, then it ceases to be a gift. It simply becomes earned income and is subject to taxation. For a gift to be a gift, it must be bestowed voluntarily and cannot be a form of compensation. Hence, gifts are not an increase that stems from some productive effort. They are simply signs of kindness and love rendered by one party to another. Beside this, gifts do not have to be tithed, since gifts cannot lawfully be given by one person to another until the tithe has been paid. Since no man can lawfully use any of his increase for his own personal use prior to him paying the tithe on it, any gift, gift rendered by him to another should have been already tithed upon. The recipient, therefore, has the right to assume that the giver has tithed upon all his increase from which the gift was given or purchased. In those cases where the giver does not pay the tithe, the recipient is still not under obligation to pay the tithe on a gift. Just as God does not hold a son responsible for his father's unlawful acts, neither does the Lord hold the recipient of a gift responsible for the giver's unlawful use of his funds. God does not require us to determine whether an item or funds that we possess have been tithed upon in every stage of its production. The Lord holds each man personally responsible for his keeping of every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. We can understand, then, that gifts that are freely bestowed and are not forms of compensation are not subject to the tithe. They are not because they are not an increase on any form of capital. Third, the poor tithe is not subject to taxation. Deuteronomy 14, 28-29 the poor need not tithe upon the tithes that they receive for the relief of their poverty. 
the poor in Israel were not in the same position as the Levites, who had to pay the tithe on all the tithes that were given to them. The Levites rendered a productive service to the community, and the tithes that were given to them were their just compensation for services performed. Poverty, sickness, and death are not productive services. They are decapitalizing and destructive. They are the result of man's rebellion against God. This does not mean that poverty, sickness, and death are sinful. They are not in and of themselves sin, but are the result of man's original sin, his desire to be as God. Since poverty is not a productive service or enterprise rendered to anyone, those tithes that have been set aside by God for the poor are not subject to taxation. Of course, any increase that the poor may receive through their own labors or as returns on their capital is subject to taxation but the tithes received by the poor for the relief of their poverty are not taxable. Fourth, the rejoicing tithe, Deuteronomy 14, 22-27, is not subject to taxation. This tithe was to be used by the tither and his household for rejoicing before the Lord each year. It was not an increase to him, since it was a free gift of God. The tither did not earn this tithe by any productive effort on his part. It was God's tithe which God returned to the tither with a stipulation that it was to be used solely for rejoicing before the Lord. Practically speaking, the rejoicing tithe cannot be counted as an increase without making a shambles of this, this tax. The reason is that if, in principle, a man had to tithe on his tithe, then he would also have to pay the tithe on the tithe of the tithe. Then, of course, he should pay the tithe on, his, on this tithe, which was the tithe of the first tithe, and so on. The result would be to make a mockery of, of the purpose and in, intent of the rejoicing tithe. God, unlike man, does not take his ta tax his taxes in order to squeeze dry the productive members of society. The tithe is a perfect example of the nature of God's law. Since God's law is law in principle, the tithe is a tax in principle. Its purpose is to establish the lordship of God over both man and his society. To see the tithe as a detailed technical tax which must be absolutely adhered to in form does violence to its intended purpose. Such a view distorts the principles and purpose of this tax and inevitably proves to be an attack upon God. For example, we have seen that, that the tithe is not a simple tax on increase per se. It is a tax levied upon all the increases above original capital and costs which stem from some form of productive service labor, or capital investment. But no man can, regardless of how careful and detailed he may be, keep totally accurate records of his costs and original capital. Since no man can keep it such records perfectly, no man can determine his profits perfectly. Hence, it is held that no man can keep the law of the tithe perfectly, because no man can determine his increase in perfect accordance with the law of God. Therefore, we are told that every man is a sinner because every man lacks proper knowledge in regards to the tithe for keeping God's law word. This argument is ungodly. It stems from the pagan view that lack of knowledge is original sin. It is not. Original sin is the desire to be as God, to determine good and evil, to make law, apart from God. The very nature of this argument is that man cannot keep the law of the tithe because man does not have exhaustive knowledge of his costs, capital, etc., this means, in essence, that man can only know the truth when he has exhaustive knowledge. Therefore, lack of knowledge must be original sin. But in order for man to have such exhaustive knowledge in order to keep God's law of the tithe, 
or any law of God, would require that man have the mind of God. And since man does not have the mind of God, this means that God is responsible for man's sin, since God did not create man with such a mind. This technical approach to God's law always ends up in this type of condemnation of the Lord. In principle, this technical approach to the word of God posits God as the author of sin because of his creation of man as a creature made in his image, rather than as a God. God's law is law in principle and must be kept in principle. No man can know God's word exhaustively, but he can and, and is required to know God's law truly. Not perfectly, since he still has the old man of sin within him, but he can understand enough of the true nature of the principles of the tithe to fulfill, fulfill the purpose of this law in history. Man simply does not have to have exhaustive, detailed, technical knowledge of God's word in order to, to obey his laws. He must understand the purpose and intent, or principles, of the word of God, and then apply these principles in order to establish the lordship of Christ in every area of life and thought. Therefore, the desire of man to obtain exhaustive knowledge in order to keep the law of the tithe is ungodly. Its aim is to avoid the principles and purposes of this tax in order to both condemn God and to elevate the mind of man in the position of the mind of God. If Christians are ever going to keep the law of the tithe properly and establish God's name on earth, they must come to some understanding of the principles and purposes of this tax. It is to these principles and purposes that we will now turn to in our discussion of the three tithes.